welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on April 18, 2018, focusing on tax reform's impact on fixed assets. The panelists for the webcast were Brad White, a PwC tax partner and leader of our accounting methods and fixed assets practice, and Nina O'Connor, Tom Dunn, and Ann Andrews, all PwC tax partners as well with our accounting methods and fixed assets practice. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on data and tracking fixed assets after tax reform. Take a listen. Tom, Mm -hmm. I'd like you to share your point of view around the integrity of the data and just your perspective knowing that you spend all of your time (laughs) in systems and in fixed assets. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the, the the main thought process I have here is everybody across the board struggles with this. I mean, there, there's unless you've got just very few fixed assets and you're all in the U.S. and maybe you're only in a couple of states, this tends to be something that everybody struggles with. And the main driver for that is the ERP systems simply don't have the capabilities and the reporting and everything that a tax department needs today. Um, you. And the reform has done nothing but make that even more complex and even more rapid change in trying to make these elections towards the end of the year. So, you know, where most tax departments end up is, at least today, to support a lot of these calculations, they're pulling things into Excel or they're sending to, I mean, maybe data to us where we're using some more sophisticated tools. But things are being done outside of the ERP or you end up with a whole lot of things being done in Excel and all of the risk around those different pieces. So I feel like that's that's probably the overlying message. The you know tax departments there as as they keep layering on these things, the process becomes even more inefficient. It becomes more risky, and the, you know fixed assets, at least in almost every company I work with, it's the largest deferred sitting on the balance sheet. So to the extent that you get an issue here, you know. Interest and penalty. I know interest has been low in the penalties, but the bigger state risk is you know little big R, little R restatements. Um, and we've definitely been brought into situations where we have a new VP of tax, a new tax director, because something went really bad in the fixed asset piece on the deferred side. So it, it's a place where our tax departments don't want, they don't like the risk, they don't feel like they've been put in a position to succeed, and they're looking to do something a little different. Um, Maybe drawing in the next slide, you know, what's, and we've talked about a lot of these, and maybe just to kind of drill home, what's made this so complex? So we've got the rate changing to 50 and 100. We didn't maybe spend a lot of time on it, but the written binding contract rules, to the extent that something was, you were bound to complete that purchase, you don't get to the 50 or the 100. And really, that the 40% that was going to be available sitting there in 2018, and then the 30%, potentially 19, if it's a really long constructed piece of property, that's still at play. So today, you've got to have in your system, if you're going to comply with all the rules, you've got to have 50, 100, 40, 30. You've got to have different classes of it. You've got the, this issue with the QIP. You know, it, today, it's 39-year property. We are all expecting there's going to be, I don't know, the legislative update or maybe even a new bill. But we, we expect that to be changed back to the 15-year with bonus. But that could happen after year-end. You know, that could, that could happen sometime in 19 after the books for 18 have been closed. You still have all of the stuff that you did for 17 that may or may not be right. Right. So, Tom, the, the client that I was talking about that was working on this very large construction project that, you know, they started in an early 2017... 
obviously they'll they well not obviously but they will be taking mm -hmm. they, they will be taking advantage of 100% depreciation but that's not going to be placed in service until 2014 there's very real risk 19 19 excuse okay. me thank you <laughs> there's a very real risk that you know they they uh, they uh, will be subject to the written binding contract rules mm -hmm. so what we're talking about there then is that they've got depreciation at 50% then at 100% then at 100% and then some of their stuff in 19 is 100% and some of it's 30% absolutely right? yep and, you know, then we have all these new calculations you just went over. And, and all of them, I mean, my, my wife didn't have a, a huge opinion when it came to, you know, tax reform <laughs> or what was that. I, I know that like-kind exchange was a little bit impactful. But you hear, hear all these, and it feels like it's just this ADS calculation. You know, it's something that a lot of people should have been doing. Well, it feels like or our experience tells us nobody really won was. And ADS, while it's straight line, so it's pretty straightforward, for some companies, just getting to the right life is complicated. So if you're in manufacturing, for example, your tooling is different than your regular process, which can be different than your R&D. If, you if you do a lot of different pieces, you know, if you're a, a multinational that's manufacturing a lot of things or serving a lot of different sectors, you, know, you're, you don't have just one or two class lives. You might have five, six, seven different class lives, and all of it's doing something different for ADS. So that's just a piece you know, from a technical systems perspective, but there's also that tax component is, can you get your book people, your book accounting folks, to even classify you into the right spot? The other piece is, you know, we talked about the, uh, the state tax differences. Um, they're already painful. Some people, because they have not been taking disposal adjustments, I would say most of our clients that we kind of work with, they're setting up their bonus adjustments correctly for the state rules, but they're maybe not dealing with it when a disposal happens. So what they're really doing is two things. One, they're, they're taking an unfavorable uh, adjustment there, but two, to the unlike in the U.S. where we have the allowed or allowed, not the U.S., but federally where we have allowed or allowable, and we're not, as long as we own the asset, we're not worried about losing an expense. If an asset's been sold, particularly at the state level, there is a real concern that if an auditor comes in and you're continuing to depreciate something that's long gone, that they might say you're no longer entitled to that and you permanently kind of lose that. So that's just you know some of the things that are there. What are some you know overlying ideas or things that if you're gonna go and fix your process, what should you be thinking about? And and you know you want to make sure that your book tax, your books and tax differences that they're being tracked at the subledger level. Um, what is your process for legislative updates? You know, is your how are you going to, one, get your software updated, and two, how are you going to track all that? You know, who are you going to work with or who are you going to designate within your um, environment to be responsible for that piece? When you have all of these new scenarios that are out there, you know, where are you going to do them? Are you going to, are they going to be in Excel? Are they going to be in the ERP? Are you going to do some other, you know, maybe a bolt-on solution or, an, an, you know, an uh, add-on solution? Same type of thing from a book tax reconciliation. Do you have a tax balance sheet that can support your deferred? Do you, you know, can you substantiate what's there? And then finally, what are you going to do from a reporting perspective? You know, how are you going to take what's coming out of these systems and get it into the compliance and hopefully in a very efficient manner where you're not spending a whole lot of hours, not adding a lot of value? You know, so these are, are just some of the things you've got to, you've got to consider. And in a lot of cases, you might, be, you might be coming into, well, should we be doing this here? Or, or you know, or, and should we be using ERP? Should we be using some other kind of platform? So... I think to really kind of wrap it up, what we wanted to go into was, you know, a case study that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with because I worked on the project. And it was a, a large company that had a lot of different, uh, basically, industries under one conglomerate that had a lot of different ledgers, a lot of different source systems. And so they had, you know, your classic problem of disparate systems, disparate tax departments. Getting the compliance process was, for them, was taking hundreds, I would even say thousands of man hours because 
every single person was having was doing through their own process. They'd pull it in, recognize that elections weren't consistent, that there were issues, so they'd push it back, and then they'd pull through. The from a they didn't have any kind of tax balance sheet set up from a planning perspective. You know, all of these kind of things were really difficult. And what they really wanted was a, a process that was going to get their reports timely. They'd be accurate that the information, this is even more important today than ever, that it was actionable. You know, we think through, sometimes we're going to be using foreign, sometimes domestic, being able to slice and dice things. You want it to be efficient and audible. So, you know, the, the piece came through, they evaluated a lot of things. Do we stay with what we're doing today? And that had some pros and cons. The big place that we spent the most amount of time is what would it take to get the ERP up in a perfect world, the ERP would do the tax, it would give me my reporting, and life would just be easy. So we really spent a lot of time on what would it take to really get there, and because there were so many sources, I mean, that's difficult for even one ERP. But when you have, you know, 10 different instances out there, the, the cost just it quickly got eliminated. You know, when we start about decoupling, if we were going to use another product like a, a FAS or a BNA, for example, you know, how, how, do you, how does that process work and how do we keep it in sync? And does it solve any of our problems with disparate systems and transactions happening between companies that we couldn't record? So we ha and then if you do decide to leave the ERP, now you've opened up the question of, well, should we continue to do this, you know, insource it? Should our team be doing it? Or should we be looking for somebody maybe that, and an outsource or a co-source perspective that can use their tool and their process to put it around. So, you know, th these are all the kind of issues that we want you to be kind of thinking through as you're going to be dealing with all the new regulations as states and bonus and everything else. You know, these are some of the decision points that are out there. Yeah, I'm going to say on my clients, Tom, they, the tax departments are get, seem to be getting smaller and smaller, less resources available, um, where typically there'd be a somebody dedicated to fixed assets, there's not that person now. They're either double or triple hatted. Um, so if you can take that burden out from that tax department, if you can have it where it's a co-source situation or an outsource situation where somebody else is mining them in, in such an important time when you need to track these fixed assets, mm -hmm. it's a really great solution. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll turn to, to you, Nina, to start with. Yep. is you know, Your thoughts on a key takeaway? Yeah, key takeaway for bonus depreciation uh, lots of moving parts. Uh, I hit some of the highlights. Um, you know, written binding contracts need to stay focused on. QIP need to stay focused on. Um, you know, if you want to maximize and optimize your tax position for that pseudo last quarter of 2017, uh, time's running out. You, you really need to take a look at your entire fixed asset listing. Anne, same question for you. Uh, I absolutely think that the key takeaway is focus on the fact that you've got a window period in order to accelerate depreciation deductions through that 481A adjustment on an accounting method change form 3115. So Thanks, get man. on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my key takeaway is here, particularly when there's maybe some rate arbitrage or under the guise of tax reform, tax departments might have some budget to address things that have always been painful. How am I going to take the new things I have to do in my existing process and turn it into something that's better for everybody? Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.